For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at Nimrod, the founder of the city of Babel, and the story of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. Let's begin with uh, just the passage here. Genesis 10, verse 6 through 9 says, The descendants of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. Okay, a few notes on Nimrod. First of all, he was the greatest hunter in the world. But it's interesting that in other translations, like the New International Version, it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this indicates that this was God's estimation of Nimrod, that he was regarded by God as a mighty hunter. Now, he was probably a military conqueror. In other passages in the Old Testament, God often describes military conquerors or powerful military nations as hunters. For example, in Jeremiah 16, verse 16. And that's why... Again, the NIV translates this, he was a mighty warrior. And I think that's probably what God is denoting here. He's saying that Nimrod was a mighty conqueror. He wasn't commending him for being, you know, taking down a 20-point buck or something like that. He wasn't skilled in, in hunting. He was a hunter of people, of men. And so already we see man's thirst for world domination almost at the very beginning of human history. We're told in verse 10 through 12, he built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia, where the cities of Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne. From there, he expanded his territory into Assyria, building the cities of Nineveh, uh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin, the great city located between Nineveh and Kalah. Now, Skeptics of the Bible have looked at some of these different details and have scoffed at all of the geographical and historical detail that the Bible puts into its Old Testament narrative. And often they try to discredit and say that these authors would include these details in order to give this sense of authenticity. And yet modern archaeology has in many ways demonstrated the veracity and accuracy of biblical information, such as its historicity and geography. Many of these places have been excavated in detail, and many of the details that have been uncovered in these excavations actually corroborate what the Bible says. For example, uh, the city of Kala. This city was actually excavated in the the mid-1900s, and they found that this was actually a major city in Assyria from about 1200 B.C. to 650 B.C. And so we see this over and over again where skeptics of the Bible have cast doubt and criticism onto the Bible, and yet modern archaeology in many ways validates and uh, shows the authenticity of the Bible. All right, Genesis 11. 
At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. It makes sense that they would do this, especially since this was after the flood, the destruction of the entire human race. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and uh, tar was used for mortar. If you go to the land of Israel, you'll find that there are these tar pits that contain bitumen. And um, actually, it, it could be used as, you know, sort of a tar for mortar. So they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united. They all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. This is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. So there you have the account of God confusing the city of Babel. Okay? A few things to note here, you know, Babel becomes sort of a prototype for Neo-Babylon and, um, as we'll see later on, cities that are um, empires that gather together in defiance against God. First of all, when you look at Babel, it was marked by technological advancements and human achievement. Some people say that the residents of Babel were building with inferior building materials like brick and tar that they used as mortar. But it could be that this actually what uh, marked a technological advancement, that they are able to construct larger and taller buildings as a result of being able to bake bricks and use mortar. And so Babel was a place where technology and intellectual pursuit thrived. And, um, you know, really, in many ways, you look at our culture today, and the spirit of Babel lives on in our culture, where many people today look to scientific discovery and technological advancement as a way to dismiss the belief in God or the necessity of a God. You know, today, many people would say that in the ancient world, people, were they didn't understand science. They were ignorant of technology. And so now that we know more, we don't have to just throw the explanation that God made this into the gaps of our knowledge. Now we can truly point to the source by which these things exist. You know, many scientists today have actually taken over the role of the philosopher. And many people, I think, in our culture today look to the scientists as the people who determine what kind of worldview they should hold. Take, for instance, uh, Stephen Hawking. 
in his book, The Grand Design, he makes this incredible claim. He says, philosophy is dead. It is not kept up with the modern developments in science, particularly in physics. As a result, scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Those of you who got a philosophy degree here, I'm sure are just, you know, gnashing your teeth at this statement. But it should be noted that when you look at Hawking's statement, it's not really a statement of science. It's a statement, it's a philosophical statement. It's actually a philosophical statement about science. And so it's very interesting that on the one hand, he's declaring that philosophy is no longer necessary, and yet he's not making a scientific statement. So he's outside of the realm of truth or knowledge according to his worldview. And so maybe Stephen Hawking could have benefited from taking a few philosophy classes to realize that his statement is actually logically incoherent. He goes on to say, spontaneous creation is the reason there's something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. It's not necessary to invoke God to the light, uh, to light the paper and set the universe going. He says, because there's always the law of gravity. The universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Okay. Now, Stephen Hawking is a respected scientist in our world today. And so I think people look at what he has to say and place a lot of weight on it. And yet when you think about what he's actually saying carefully, one asks the question, what does he mean by nothing? On the one hand, he's saying that uh, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing, and yet he also seems to assume that gravity exists, which doesn't seem like nothing to me. It seems like something. And so he's both asserting that the universe comes into existence from nothing, but it's also from something. Not really a good start. Well, John Lennox in his book, Stephen Hawking or God, Whose Universe Is It Anyway? Great title. <laughs> Concludes, what this all goes to show is that nonsense remains nonsense even when talked by world-famous scientists. What serves to obscure the illogicality of such statements is the fact that they are made by scientists. And the general public, not surprisingly, assumes that there are statements of science and takes them on authority. This is why it's important to point out that they are not statements of science and any statement, where, whether made by a scientist or not, should be open to logical analysis. Immense prestige and authority does not compensate for faulty logic. And so, contrary to Stephen Hawking's main thesis in his book, The Grand Design, he hasn't really managed to dethrone God from his role as the creator of the universe. And yet I think many people today believe that they can dispense with the idea of God because we do have science. We have an explanation that we no longer have to, to say God did this. Now, it's also interesting that the residents of Babel said, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. 
This was their motivation for building this incredible city and tower. And um, it should be noted that they weren't literally trying to build a tower into heaven. That's stupid. That's like uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. The point was that they were building a tower that was really the equivalent of a modern-day skyscraper. We can identify what they actually were building, that these were ancient ziggurats, and that often at the very top of these ziggurats they would have observation towers. So these things needed to be very tall. You know, another thing that we can note is that human pride and nationalism fueled its construction. It's interesting that when you look at the account, it says that the residents of Babel sought to make a name for themselves. What does it mean to make a name for yourself? It means to accomplish something that will make you distinct, something that's going to make you special, right? Something that indicates that you're not just merely a cog in the machine, but that you're actually something different, distinct, that you have a name, that you're special. And that's what these guys were doing. They were trying to accomplish something that would give them a name, give them the kind of distinction that they wanted apart from God. In addition to this, they also suppressed diversity. Notice in our account it said that they reasoned to themselves, if we build this great tower, we can all stay together and never have to scatter. Uh, I didn't actually notice this at first, but the uh, famous Croatian theologian who actually uh, lived under communist Yugoslavia, Miroslav uh, Volf, points out, Imperial architects seek to unify by suppressing differences that don't fit into the single grand scheme. They strive to make their own name by erasing the names of simple people in small nations. And so he points out that when you look at God's judgment upon the city of Babel, what did he do? He confused their languages and dispersed them. And so it must indicate that these people were trying to unify themselves by at the same time suppressing any sort of diversity. And you see this really throughout history. Whenever a one-world empire rises up, there is an act of suppression of things that they view to be a threat to the unity of that empire. The residents of Babel were also probably engaged in polytheism. We know that, as, as we'll find out later on, Babel actually meant the gate of the gods. And these ziggurats were actually constructed often as a temple of worship to the gods. Now, we know that God didn't instruct them to build this temple. They were the ones who conceived of that in their own minds. And so, therefore, they probably have already started to, to drift away from belief in God and started to import belief in other gods. Also, Babel represented humanity's first empire founded and ruled by the godless tyrant Nimrod. Probably wondering, where is he getting all that from? Well, actually, Nimrod's name literally means we shall rebel. And so, uh, in a way, he represented the first oppressive tyrant who sought to make a name for himself. 
And so God took notice of this city. And it's interesting, the Akkadian word, Babel, means gate of the gods. And later in Hebrew, it came to be known as Babal, which means to confuse. So it's sort of a play on words. And so God's judgment actually created further misunderstanding and estrangement. That was the effect that this had on the nations. And, um, you know, when you think about having different languages, it actually creates lots of confusion. You know, imagine, you know, going to a different country, not knowing the language and trying to communicate with the residents of that particular country. It's very difficult to do that. You know, some linguists have defined language as a system of arbitrary vocal symbols by means of which a social group cooperates, which I think is a pretty good definition. You know, and it is sort of an arbitrary system. You think about English-speaking people, and when we say the word mist, what do we associate that with? We associate that with, like, fog, right? But when you talk to somebody who comes from a Germanic background, the word mist actually means dung or refuse. And so it's, it's uh, the same word, but different connotations. And so, you know, I'm not going to even go into all the different things that go into the miscommunication that we often experience, even with people from our, who can speak our own language. You know, think about the difficulty that you often experience on a daily basis trying to communicate with somebody. And how that creates tension in your relationship. How it often creates estrangement. And so that's what this represented. It represented a scattering, but also an estrangement among the people. But God's dispersal of the nations was actually his merciful attempt to prevent its future destruction. Because he knew in his foreknowledge that as the nation would continue and progress the logical conclusion would be its own destruction. And so Babel then becomes kind of an archetype in the Bible for human empires that gather in defiance against God. It's kind of interesting if you track sort of the thread of Babel. In the 600s BC, Neo-Babylon came to power under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar II. And... He represented one of the greatest kings of ancient history. God regarded him and his empire as one of the greatest empires. And yet, his thirst, his desire, his intoxication for power caused him to make incredible boasts that God eventually used to judge him. Later, we find out that many empires uh, rose up, especially the Roman Empire, and in the New Testament, actually, Peter refers to the Roman Empire as Babylon. First Peter 5.3, as Peter's signing off on his letter, he says, your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings. Now, if you know the chronology of this, you know, Peter was writing in the first century A.D. So this is like 700 years after Babylon disappeared. And so Babylon then became a symbol especially in the early church, of a world empire that gathered together in defiance against God, the nations in rebellion against God. And the spirit of Babylon lives with us even today. You know, you think about 
in recent history, some of the communist regimes um, like communist Russia. Uh, you think about the Khmer Rouge. You think about on the opposite end of the spectrum, on the nationalist side, you think about the Nazi regime. All of these represent the Babylon of our day. And, and God actually says that one day there will be a true embodiment of this Babylon in what he calls the great city of Babylon, Babylon the Great in Revelation 18. And so I wanted to take a look at this and, and kind of fill in some of the gaps. We get a little bit more information about this Babylon the Great as we look at the book of Revelation. In Revelation 18, verse 1 and 2, John, the apostle, says, After this I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon has fallen, the great city has fallen. So apparently, at the end of human history, a great nation arises. And if you read the book of Revelation, it actually tells you that this great nation arises under the leadership of a one-world ruler who the Bible refers affectionately to as the beast. And so, as this nation rises up in defiance against God, God finally says, I'm going to put an end to this, and actually judges the city. And this is what's being described in Revelation 18. A few things that we want to look at with Babylon the Great. First of all, it epitomizes political power and world domination. You know, you think about, you know, our day. It's not really that difficult, I think, to, to envision the world uniting. You know, our world is under incredible pressure. You know, you think about our population, it's just exploding. Here's a, a graph of our world population. You know, you get to about 1000 AD, and the world population is still probably in the 200 million range. And then you get to about 1830, roughly around the time of the Industrial Revolution, you hit your first billion. And from there, it just goes up. And, you know, as of uh, 3 p.m. today, um, you know, certain websites estimate that the world population stands at about 7.5 billion people. And the United Nations actually estimates that by the year 2100, our population will grow to about 11.2 billion people. Scientists are disturbed by this. They're afraid of the, the implications of this. They, they're concerned about the sustainability. How can the world provide the resources necessary to keep all of those people alive? And so you can imagine, you know, nations coming together as resources dry up to try to pool together resources to survive. You think about the growing common threat of terrorism throughout the world. It's not hard to imagine the nations coming together uh, as allies against terrorism. We have a precedent really throughout human history of world empires coming into power, so it's not that hard to imagine. You know, I was just actually listening to a podcast recently which uh, describes how uh, the Great Recession of 2008 
led to people formulating the idea of having a universal currency like Bitcoin and Zcash. And so the, the possibility of the nations coming together through their own ingenuity is, is not something that seems completely out of the realm of possibility. Secondly, Babylon the Great, in this world order, people will feel like they've reached the pinnacle of human achievement. You know, when you peek into the future, Paul tells us in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, speaking of this time, he says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. You know, you can imagine as the world unifies and there's peace and safety, people are going to say, we finally did it. We're able to unify the whole world and we're, we're living in peace and harmony. And yet, one of the vital pieces of the puzzle that's missing from it is God and His rulership. And so it's possible, according to the Bible, for humans to come together and to forge this kind of peace and unity, but ultimately it leads to the destruction of this great nation, this empire that arises. Also, its inhabitants will possess an insatiable thirst for money and possessions. Revelation 18, verse 11 and 12 says, The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. This is in the aftermath of her judgment, the great city. She bought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, uh, scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant thine wood, whatever that is, uh, ivory goods, objects made of expensive wood and bronze, iron, and marble. And so these people are living in opulence. You know, their houses are constructed of the greatest, most lavish building materials. And, you know, this materialistic dimension of Babylon is still alive and present even in our own day, today. You know, think about that surge of excitement that you get as you're tearing open your package containing your new device that you've been waiting for in the mail. You know, that represents that insatiable thirst, that materialistic drive that we all have. You know, think about the exhilaration you feel as you hand your credit card over to the sales associate to ring up those brand new pair of shoes that you've been wanting all week long. Finally, you're able to purchase. You know, we live in a culture where people center their entire lives around their money and their possessions. And yet we see people sort of on this endless cycle of trying to fill this, this sense of need in their lives by purchasing more and more, by squirreling away more and more money and deriving a false sense of security from it, only to feel this sense of emptiness, that something's missing. And God explains that the reason why we feel this even though by comparison to the rest of the world, we are literally the richest people on earth. Even the poorest person in this room is regarded as one of the richest people in the world. When you compare yourself to people who are earning literally $1.25 a day. And yet we still feel like something's missing. And the reason that we feel this way is that God says that Whatever we try to stuff into that void we feel right here, 
Nothing is going to fully satisfy that except for God himself. That's what Blaise Pascal calls the infinite void. That nothing we can take that's temporary, we can try to fill into that void and ever feel satisfaction. The only thing that can fill that is God himself. We are made to be in a relationship with him. Also, we see that um, Babylon is marked by opulence, hedonism, and pleasure. Revelation 18.13 says uh, she also bought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons. You know, these represent uh, the finest ingredients that money can purchase. This describes the desire to live for pleasure, for experience. You know, and when you live in a society, a culture that has removed God from the equation, then you're really left with no sense of significance. You, you have to try to quilt together experiences in order to draw a sense of meaning in your life. You know, think about people who center their entire lives around the next fine dining experience that they can have. Or think about, you know, the people down on campus who just look forward, you know, they work hard all week long and they're just looking forward to partying on the weekends, maybe have a, a, a sexual experience that they can collect. Everything is all about just trying to live in the moment and trying to make meaning and sense of our lives from a collection of experiences that we have. And yet something inside of us tells us that we shouldn't lift up our head and ask the bigger questions because we're going to be completely lost. And so all of it's just a distraction. It's all a way of avoiding the question, the ultimate question, does God exist? And I think a lot of times we're at, we, we don't want to ask ourselves that question, because, not because we feel like if I ask that question, the likely answer is he doesn't exist. The reason I think we're resistant to ask that question is because we know he's likely there. In which case, we have implications upon our life. Also, hubris and a desire to find meaning and purpose apart from God exists in Babylon. Think about Revelation 18, 22 and 23. The sounds of harps, singers, flutes, and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No craftsmen, no trades will ever be found in you. The sound of the mill will never be heard in you again, speaking of this city. And the light of a lamp will never shine in you again, for the merchants were the greatest in the world. And so you kind of group these together. You know, the sound of harps, singers, flutes, and trumpets refers to the arts. You know, these were people who centered their lives around creating. They essentially dethroned God by trying to make this the central purpose of their life instead of following God. God says that he judged that. We're also told that there are craftsmen and traders, the sound of a mill. This represents industry and technology. God judges the industry and technology of this city because it was used, just like it was in Babel, to dethrone God and to eliminate his existence or the need for his existence in life. And then says, for your merchants were the greatest in the world. And so this was a judgment upon the commerce of this city that was seducing the nations away from God. And so that's one of the characteristics of Babylon is this desire 
to find meaning apart from God. And, you know, we do this in many different ways. You know, we try to forge a sense of identity by the clothes that we wear, by the car that we drive, by the person that we're dating. For some of us, it's all about our achievements, the success that we can get, either in school or at work. You know, when somebody comes up and asks you, who are you? What makes you you? What do you say? Well, I guess if you're a really talented basketball player, you'd say, I'm a basketball player. Or if you're a talented athlete, you might say, I'm a national shuffleboard champion. (laughs) I mean, you know, for some of us, we've been told all of our lives by the people around us, you're really smart. And we believe that. And so we essentially throw our identity into that. I'm a smart person. But we're smart enough not to say that we're smart because we know that that's arrogant. And so we're eagerly awaiting an opportunity to tell people, yeah, I'm just, you know, pursuing my uh, Ph.D. in uh, biophysics. You know, hoping that people are going to pat us on the back. And so there is this drive, this desire to try to create meaning and significance apart from God. You know, it's interesting. The singer Madonna has, in a pretty honest moment says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a human, special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear fear of being mediocre. And it's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle will never end and it will probably never will end. There you have it, from the material girl herself. You know, you look at her life and you think to yourself, there's just no way that, you know, she struggles with these feelings that I struggle with on a daily basis. And yet those same things drive her just like they drive you. The desire to matter, to be somebody, to grasp on to some sort of achievement or goal, and to feel that sense that I'm significant. And yet that quickly fades away. Mary Bell, a famous psychologist, says achievement is the alcohol of our time these days. The best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. You're successful. So good good things happen. You complete a project and you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever and so you slide back to normal. You love the feeling of euphoria, so you've got to get it back again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. So you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem is on the line because you haven't You've been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually in this cycle, you drop to to the pain level more and more often. The highs don't seem quite so high anymore. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one you got away, that got away, but somehow that deal doesn't take you to that euphoria. An achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. It's very true today. People in our culture are achievement addicts. The thrill of accomplishment, the thrill of success drives us. And yet even when we attain that success, that achievement that we've been centering our lives around for years, 
there's this sense of dissatisfaction that we feel. Why is that? It's because nothing that God has provided for us, the things that we've been describing, can ever satisfy the deep need that we feel. Well, God actually offers an alternative, the new Jerusalem, that he describes in in Revelation 21 and 22. I just wanted to do a real quick comparison of this. You know, on the one hand, you have Babylon, which uh, is under tyrannical rulership. Whereas under the new Jerusalem, God promises that he will give us his benevolent rulership. You know, God does provide restrictions on our lives. But restrictions aren't necessarily a bad thing. You know, I was thinking about my son, and uh, we, on occasion, have a movie night whenever we have our time together, our weekly time. And so one of the things we do is we go and get movie candy, and I let him, you know, pick out a few different types of candy. And one night, I made the mistake of just basically giving him free reign. And I think he literally ate like two whole boxes of gobstoppers or something like that. And by the end of the night, he was just puking uh, this, this technicolor liquid all over our carpet. Having some restrictions isn't a bad thing, right? A benevolent ruler in my household would have said, Julius, you need to stop right there, dude. Box number one is good enough. In Babylon, God confuses its language, which actually leads to increased miscommunication and estrangement. In the New Jerusalem, God will unite people with a common language. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. How can you have unity without being able to understand one another? There certainly has to be some sort of common language that unifies all people in God's new order in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. In Babylon, they sought to build a tower that reached into the heavens. Whereas in the new Jerusalem, it descends from heaven and it comes from God. I think that's interesting because it points to how on the one hand, when we try to build things, we are trying to prop ourselves up to put ourselves in God's place. Whereas God's provision for us comes directly from him down to us. In Revelation 21.10, he says, So he took me in the Spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Babel, which means the gate of the gods, led to displacement and estrangement, whereas the New Jerusalem, its open gates, actually unite the nations. We're told in Revelation 21, verse 24 through 27, the nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all its gl- in their glory. Its gates will never be closed, and all the nations will bring glory and honor into the city. All the nations will unite and come and bring glory to the city. Babylon sought to make a name for themselves. Whereas in the New Jerusalem, God actually gives its residents a name. In Revelation 22, verse 3 through 5, we're told the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. 
And they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and they will reign forever and ever. You know, we all long for a name, to make a name for ourselves. And God promises that he will give us that name. The significance that we've been longing for all of our lives. He will impart that to us as residents of the city he's built. In Babel, it actually led to displacement and estrangement. Whereas in the New Jerusalem, uh, I read that part right. Sought to make a name for themselves. I read that too. Marked by the all-out pursuit of pleasure and materialism, whereas in the New Jerusalem, we will maximize our enjoyment of these things as we worship God. You know, God doesn't want to restrict our our experience of pleasure. Uh, He wants it to be in its proper place. The pursuit of science and technology as a means to dismiss the notion of God was marked by Babel. Whereas in the New Jerusalem, the pursuit of science and technology is a means to glorify God. As we uh, pursue science and, and deeper understanding, it'll increase our wonder of God and who he is. Under Babel, we, unity is, imposes unity and suppresses diversity, whereas in the New Jerusalem, both unity and diversity are expressed. And with Babylon, it ends in destruction, whereas in the New Jerusalem, it endures for all of eternity. And so really, God provides a great alternative to the world that we want to construct through our own ingenuity. Let's draw a couple of conclusions. I think, first of all, the spirit of Babylon is alive and active today. I think I made that case. All of the things that Babylon represented is here today. And really, Babylon's values seek to seduce us away from God. They provide false alternatives to what God wants to offer us. And, you know, God seeks to fulfill our deepest needs in a world under his loving rulership. God wants to give you the desires of your heart. But it starts first by forging a relationship with him. And so God wants to provide you the world that you want, that you envision. But entrance into this this new Jerusalem requires belief in Christ. You know, if you're here tonight, you know, one of the central things that God wants to communicate to you is He loves you. But you're separated from Him. You face the estrangement that, that all of us do when we are born. And yet God says that in his love and mercy, he wants to be unified with us, that he wants to give us entrance into the new Jerusalem, but it requires us coming first to him and receiving the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And the moment you do that, God will confer citizenship to you that can never be taken away. Okay. Yeah, we uh, thank you for your promise that you oppose the proud, but you will lift up the humble. And um, pray that we can um, have the humility to see that uh, life apart from you is headed nowhere and ultimately headed toward destruction. And um, we thank you that you, first of all, provide an alternative, uh, that you want to give us a world that's under your leadership and uh, where we can truly enjoy and express ourselves the way you wanted us to. But we know that that uh, entrance 
is uh, barred by our sin, that it stops us from experiencing the blessing you want to give us. And we thank you that you took the extra step of uh, sending your son Jesus to clear that away, to pay for the sin that we have committed and to give us entrance into your great city one day. And uh, I pray, Lord, for any of us who uh, just feel ourselves striving to make a name for ourselves, to try to create a sense of significance out of the things that we own or the things that we do, that we would uh, be humble and admit that we need you. And uh, ultimately that we need Jesus' forgiveness. And so we thank you for anybody who's turned themselves over to you and received him. And um, we look forward, Lord, to being together in your new Jerusalem. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.